Well, the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. In Acts chapter 17, St. Paul had been given an amazing opportunity to witness for Christ. He was in Athens. He was standing in the Areopagus preaching to crowds of Greeks, among whom were pagan philosophers and Athenian council members. Everything seemed to be going really well in Paul's sermon. He had lots of time to kind of exposit Scripture, to talk about what God has done in saving and redeeming His people. He was going along in his sermon, and when he got to one part of the sermon, everything changed. When he got to the resurrection of the dead, it totally changed the tone. That was where his audience wanted him to stop and preach no more. He did gain some followers that day. He had some people that were curious to hear more about this Jesus business. But most of them, for most of them, the resurrection of the dead was a non-starter. And it was something that they could never get behind. They automatically ruled it out. So we've come to chapter 15 in Paul's letter to the Corinthians today. We are beginning to wrap up this sermon series called The Body of Christ. It's this interesting shift here that Paul makes in his letter. In chapters 12 through 14, he was talking about, uh, he was talking about the body of Christ, the church. That's what we've been discussing. We are the church. We are his body. Now, in chapter 15, he begins talking about the literal body of Jesus, the flesh and blood Jesus Uh, body of Jesus and what happened to that body in human history. If there is no death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, then there is no good reason for us to call us his body. There's no good reason to walk in Christian virtue for that matter. There's no reason for us to live this Christian life. These spiritual gifts that we've been talking about, they don't even exist apart from a resurrection of the body. Neither does the church. So therefore, it makes complete sense for Paul to end his letter this way. He's talking about the resurrection of the body of Jesus, which ultimately, brothers and sisters, means whose resurrection? Our resurrection. So we're going to look at this chapter, chapter 15, this week and next. And we're we're not going to do it any justice, just let me tell you. You can actually craft a whole... Uh, uh, months-long sermon series just based on this 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to try to do it in two weeks. So buckle up. One commentator called this section of Scripture the crowning glory of this epistle. It's the crowning jewel of this letter. St. Paul, he's, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and what he's doing is he's given us this master class in combating, in combating some serious false teaching that had crept into the Corinthian church which we're going to talk about, but he also points us back to the very thing that makes us the body of Christ in the first place, the most important marker of the Holy Christian Church, which is the gospel itself, the gospel. So to help us along here, we're going to, we're going to divide this, these, this long portion of Scripture up into two parts, and then I'll show you what it means for us. So the two parts are the certainty of the resurrection, and the second part is the necessity of 
of the resurrection. So the certainty of the resurrection and the necessity of the resurrection. We begin with the first part. So among the whole host of problems that were in the Corinthian church and what the Corinthians were dealing with, perhaps the most troubling was this. We've, we've heard all about some of their problems. We're barely scratching the surface. But they had this one major problem, and it's that they did not understand the resurrection of the dead. Apparently, there were some in the congregation that had difficulty breaking free from their background of Greek ideas and philosophies. You see, within that Greek system of thought, it was taught that there was no eternity for the body. Only the soul. See, it was the soul that crossed the river Styx into the underworld. If you can think back to 8th grade and ninth grade when you learned Greek mythology, it was the soul that lived on and not the body. There is no eternity for the body, only the soul. The body was a temporary vessel. And upon death, it's said that the soul breaks free of the body. It's like a, it's like a fleshly prison that you need to escape from. That was the Greek system of thought. And this is why Paul was laughed at. When he stood up at the Areopagus to preach the resurrection of the dead, he was laughed at and mocked. This is why he had to be very clear with the Corinthians, because this was the context they were dealing with. And that Greek mindset had crept into the Corinthian congregation. And just like with their use of those spiritual gifts, they had become so hyper-spiritual that they, find the, uh, they, they found that the idea of a resurrected body, they found that to be crass and embarrassing. Now, perhaps they had faith that Christ had been raised in the body, but Jesus, in their minds, was probably the exception. He was the exception. Jesus is special. So, sure, he was raised in the body, but our bodies being raised? Pfft. That was beyond the pale. No, Paul would have none of this. The resurrection of the body of Jesus, the resurrection of the body of all believers is no abstraction. It's no fanciful idea, but rather it's something in Jesus. It has occurred in history on a particular day in a particular location, and there were actual eyewitnesses. You could have checked their testimony. You could go check this out. This is a concrete reality, and it is of life and death significance. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the heart of the gospel. It's at the center of the universe. This same gospel that's preached by Paul and by the apostles, this gospel by which we are being saved. And what is that gospel? Paul lines it out for us. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. It's that simple for Paul. The gospel is not a set of ideas or beliefs that would be nice if they were true. It's not Aesop's fables. This good news is a reference to an actual event that occurred in human history. 
this Jesus of Nazareth actually died. He was actually buried. And he truly did rise again on the third day, just as the scriptures said he would. And the Corinthians could have checked with those eyewitnesses to verify this. You and I, we can't go check. They're long since dead, right? But the Corinthians could. This was not a mass delusion. Have you ever heard of 500 people having the same hypnotic delusion at the same time? No, it does not work that way. It's not a mass delusion. It's not a hoax that's concocted to acquire political clout, as some suggest. Matter of fact, you know what, you know what allegiance to the risen Lord Jesus got you in those days? Death, persecution. This is not a political, this is the most terrible political hoax in the history of humanity. If you're going to make up this story and stake your life upon it if it's not true. It does not work that way. It would have been foolish to hold to this if it were a hoax. So what happened to the body of Jesus some 2,000 years ago? It sets our religion apart from all other world religions. You know, in other religions where, where there's the claim of the miraculous, there is only blind faith. There's no eyewitnesses. There's no dates, times, locations, places. In our case, however, we have certainty. Not just wishful thinking. We have certainty. This death and resurrection of Jesus occurred in history. And because that is the case, we can bank our eternity upon it. You and I can. So the second part of our reading today speaks about the necessity of the resurrection. So we have certainty in the resurrection. Now here's how necessary this resurrection is to our message. Paul was so sure and certain of the resurrection that he said there is no gospel apart from it. If you don't have a resurrection of the body, you don't have a gospel. And he makes that very argument in verses 12 through 19. This is what he says, very repetitive. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, the the preaching of the apostles, is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ, listen to this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people, that's Christians, we of all people are most to be pitied. The world should feel sorry for us if Christ has not been raised. My friends, this is how critical it is that we have a bodily resurrection of Jesus. Paul's argument goes something like this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then the apostles and the eyewitnesses are all liars. Matter of fact, God has been made out to be a liar. Jesus Christ has been made out to be a liar as he said that he would be what? Raised? 
You and I are still dead in our sins. There is no justification. There is no salvation. There's no eternal life, no forgiveness of sins. As a matter of fact, the world ought to feel sorry for us. Brothers and sisters, the the Christian religion, our very faith hinges upon this question, whether or not Christ was truly raised in the body. If he was not bodily raised, then the whole thing falls apart. I would go this far and listen closely. If Christ has not been raised, then you should walk away from this. That's what Paul's saying. This thing called the church, this thing called Christian life, faith itself, it's, it's not worth it if there is no bodily resurrection of Jesus. I know that's strong, but that's the argument that Paul's making. In this passage, Paul is giving you permission to walk away if the dead are not raised. You see, Christianity is distinct from other world religions. It's not a system, it's not a system of morality. God isn't all that interested in being your life coach or your self-help guru. He's not. You want to be a good person? You want to live a virtuous and upright life? You can get that. You can get that in any other religion. You can. There's so many out there. What you cannot get, however, is a bodily resurrection. You can't get a rising from the grave to an eternal embodied life in any other religion. That is what Jesus won for you in his bodily death on the cross, on a particular hill, on a particular Friday. That's what he won for you in his bodily resurrection that following Sunday. Friends, God is primarily in the business of dishing out the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and salvation on account of His Son. That's His goal. That's His will for you. That's what He wants for you. And that goal cannot be accomplished unless you have a very real bodily resurrection. He cannot make you physically and spiritually spiritually alive if His Son was not first made so. But in fact, that's what verse 20 says exactly. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What's this first fruits language? Well, the first fruits harvest was the people's offering. They brought this generous generous portion of, uh, of their crops to God, this first fruits, the first kind of harvest. They would bring it to God even when they didn't know what the rest of the crop was going to look like because they were believing and trusting that God had provided and that he would continue to provide. This was the first fruits offering. So the first fruits meant what? It meant there's more where that came from. There is more where that came from. Jesus Christ is the first fruits that have died means because he was raised in the body, there is plenty more where that came from. When Jesus comes again on the last day, there will be a resurrection of the body for all. And for those who have trusted in Jesus, it will be a very real, very embodied existence of eternal life, ever-increasing joy in the presence of our Savior. We're going to talk more about our resurrection next week. 
You are the body of Christ. You are the church. You are truly connected to Christ's physical body. You are connected to Christ's physical body. You've been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. You've been made one with His body, which is what 1 Corinthians 12 says. You will again eat and drink His body and His blood, wherein He makes Himself one with your physical body. And all of these are promises and assurances that He will not leave us, nor will He abandon us, but that His Word is sure and certain just as much as His resurrection from the dead. And this reality, church, changes everything. It changes everything for us. It changes the way that you and I live life together. It changes the hope that we have, that hope that the world does not share, the hope that the world needs to hear. And so we confess that hope together. We confess with all Christians throughout the centuries that on the last day, Christ will raise me and all the dead and will grant eternal life to me and to all who believe in Christ. This is most certainly true. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to God, his, his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.